as the early reformers reminded us, uh, not only is the preaching of God's word a means of grace, but so is the, the reading of it. So before we even read our text this morning, allow me to once again pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to pray for the illumination of your word. Lord, you are the portion of your people, and this morning we wholeheartedly seek your favor. Be gracious to us according to your word. Consider our ways and turn our feet to your testimonies. This morning we have hastened to keep your commandments. Even when the cords of the wicked have encircled us, we have not forgotten your law. Even at midnight we shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. And this morning we gather to worship, and part of worship is the reading and preaching of your word, which is one of your righteous ordinances. So we turn to the scriptures with love for and faith in Jesus Christ. We are a companion of all those who fear you and all those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your covenant kindness, O Lord, and we ask that as we hear from the gospel of Mark this morning that you would teach us your statutes and show us your grace for our good and your glory. Amen. Our Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 110, and then we will turn over to Mark chapter 12 to read verses 35 through 37. For those of you that read on your app, I am in the English Standard Version this morning. But having said all of that, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We turn over to Mark chapter 12, picking up in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Here at Christ the King Church, we are building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We are rooting our Christian practices in the historic Reformed faith and preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And today we conclude a section of the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus has had five consecutive confrontations in Jerusalem just a few days before his death. And at this point in the, the confrontations, Jesus has silenced all of his, all of his critics uh, the New American Standard version of Mark chapter 12 says no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I actually prefer the ESV here. It says after that no one dared to ask him uh, any more questions. So he is now getting to set the agenda for the public 
discourse. He has limited teaching opportunities publicly before he goes to the cross. And when he has limited teaching opportunities left, what does he choose to talk about when he gets to set the agenda? Well, Jesus brings up the topic of the son of David by asking about the teaching of the scribes on the topic. That's what we see in verse 35, right? They're in the temple, and he says, how can the scribes, that means the scribes have been talking about the Christ as the son of David, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And and that question alone means two things, at least two things. It means that the Old Testament experts of the day, the, the trained kind of theologians, the scribes, they drew conclusions from the Old Testament that there was a Messiah coming. Right? It means that the idea of a Messiah, the idea of a Christ, is not something that the early church invented. The idea of a Messiah, the idea of a Christ, is not something that some council of Nicaea or council of Chalcedon, it's not something that they came up with 500 years, 300 years after the death of Jesus. What this verse means is that there was a concept amongst the scholars of the day that there was an anointed one who was prophesied in the Old Testament that was coming. The Old Testament points to the Messiah. The second thing that it means is that that the scribes taught, they understood, Israel understood that the anointed one of God, the Christ, was coming from the line of David. They understood that the Messiah who would rule over all the nations, the Gentiles included, he would come from their nation. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would come specifically from the household of Jesse through his youngest son, David, right? That's not something that they figured out later. It's something that the scribes were teaching there even before they understood who Jesus was. The Old Testament is clear that the anointed one is David's offspring. From the Psalms to the prophets to even some of the Old Testament, uh, even in the Pentateuch and in the Old Testament covenants, it's pretty clear that the anointed one is going to come from a specific place of specific family and at this time they understood it was from David's line the common Jewish understanding in the days of Jesus was that indeed an individual who they understood as the Messiah that's same word as anointed one or Christ they understood he was coming he would come from the household of King David and they rightly believed that the covenant promise that was made to King David by God in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 while it certainly had nearer fulfillments, more, uh, more contemporary fulfillments to the life of King David, they also understood there were, there were fulfillments of those promises that were, that were further off. Now, when we study early church history, you will find various Christological heresies popping up from one century to another. It's kind of amazing. I actually have a chart, PDF chart that kind of shows some of the early Christological heresies I can send you if you want it. And it's amazing how they kind of ping pong back and forth where this heresy will deny the true humanity and then this one will deny the true uh, divinity of Christ. And then back and forth they'll kind of go. But most Christological heresies de-emphasize one of the two natures of, of Christ. And sadly, sometimes men that opposed one heresy early on end up later adopting some other Christological heresy. Right? Justin Martyr, for example. Right? He opposed Gnosticism but he ended up supporting uh, Apollinarianism, which gets its name from Apollinarius, the, the bishop who kind of developed this false teaching. Tertullian opposed both Gnosticism and modalism, right? Modalism is a heresy that's actually still held by some, not all, but some Pentecostals today, okay? So Tertullian opposed those two heresies, but later in his life, he became a Montanist, 
which isn't a heresy against the person of Christ as much as it is against his work because it functionally denies the finished work of Christ for Christians. The Montanists had tons of problems in their doctrine. One of their doctrines was that only uh, the only sins that we were sure to be forgiven of were the sins that we, that we committed before we converted to Christianity, right? So you kind of imagine, it's like, well, if, if you know, why, why would I come to saving faith at age six? Why would, I, why would I not try to wait and gamble a little bit? Like, you know, that's a terrible, terrible heresy. But he defended the church against these terrible Christological heresies, and later in his life, he adopted this other heresy. Now, I bring that to your attention because in the days of Jesus, as the Jewish people were anticipating the Messiah, they were apparently so fixated on the humanity of the Messiah that they neglected the divinity of the Messiah. More than one scholar concurs that it seems to be that the problem in the first century is that they emphasized the humanity of the Christ that was coming, specifically his humanity that was coming from the line of David. They taught that he was the son of David. And it seems like what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to give them the other half of the picture. He's trying to remind them of the other half of the biblical teaching, right? And Jesus, being wise, doesn't, doesn't say, no, 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 forget about that humanity stuff. Just think about their, his, his divinity. Just think about the divinity, the deity of the Christ to come. No, Jesus doesn't want to overcorrect. He just wants to give them the other, path, other half of the big picture. I think that's what Jesus is driving at as he asks these questions really about himself, right? He's ultimately talking about himself. Most people, when they talk about themselves, right, when, when they get to set the public discourse agenda and they just start talking about themselves, they do it because they're vain. That's not what Jesus is doing here, right? Jesus has shown them the law. And now he's giving them the gospel, right? He's, he's making them think about the anointed one that's coming to save, to save his people. But this This point that I just brought up about their emphasis on the humanity of Christ and about some of the early church uh, uh, theologians, it brings up our woeful fallen condition. And that is that most people don't think about the Messiah. But those that do set their hopes and thoughts upon the Christ can sometimes find themselves thinking incorrectly about him. But here's God's grace to us. And this is the big idea of the sermon today. Jesus teaches us the truth about himself. Jesus doesn't, like, leave us wondering what he thinks uh, about himself. He doesn't leave us to kind of try to uh, grope in the dark about who he is. The words of Christ instruct us in the person and work of Christ. Does that make sense? So when there's a lack of clarity, it's the words of Christ himself that teach us the truth about the Messiah. So after showing them, as I have already mentioned, the law... Right, after holding up this mirror and saying, here's the two greatest commandments, right? And after showing them how far they fall short of the law of God, it should be no surprise that Jesus wants to talk about himself because he's gracious, because he understands that he is the cure for what ails mankind, and that is our sin. So let's look at how Jesus set about to get them on the right track and in their thinking about the Messiah. I want to start with the Psalm of David that he quoted. He quotes the Psalm of David in verse 36, but I want to take a look at Psalm uh, 110 in its, own, uh, in its own, own context for just a second. What's going on here, if you'll turn to Psalm 110, you'll see this in verse 1. The ESV and the New American Standard both do this in Psalm 110. I think it's really helpful. The first use of the word LORD is all caps. Right? Usually what happens is they'll capitalize the letter L, then they'll all caps O-R-D, but make it two, uh, two font points smaller. And then you'll notice the second word Lord is capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. 
The New American Standard and the ESV do that because those are two different Hebrew words. Now, here's what drives me nuts about the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version. Both of them don't keep that same style choice in the quote in Mark. When you look at the ESV in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, when Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, they're both capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And the, it's the opposite in the New American Standard. It's all caps in Mark chapter 12. It drives me nuts, right? I would write letters to the editors, but, you know, they don't care what I think. But this is helpful because when you read your Old Testament and you see LORD, all caps, it's the divine name Yahweh, right? The I am, God's personal name. When you see, usually when you see LORD, capital L, not all caps, it's Adonai. We talked about this when, when I taught on Isaiah chapter 6 at Christmas season of 2021, right? Because what Isaiah sees is the sovereign one, the Adonai, right? Yahweh, I am, Adonai, sovereign one. Divine name, divine title, okay? And out of either reverence for God or some sort of superstition, Jewish people at this time, and apparently still to this day, do not say the name Yahweh, right? Even when they would be reading the scriptures and they would come to the word Yahweh, they would instead say Adonai, right? Why would they do that? Well, because Adonai is used all the time for God in other texts, right? You saw it already in the assurance of pardon from Psalm 130. Did anybody catch that? I actually got it right when I was filling out the bulletin. One of them is all caps, Lord. The other one is not, okay? Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Yahweh. Adonai, hear my voice. If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? Do you see how the psalmist goes back and forth between one and the other so quickly? He goes on to say, I wait for Yahweh. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Adonai more than the watchman for the morning. Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Adonai sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Later in the passage, he says, For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Psalm 8 opens with verse 1 and closes with verse 9 the exact same way, exact same line. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in Psalm 90, it's the psalm of Moses. When you read that psalm, for the first 13 verses, there's no mention of Yahweh. There's only Moses talking about, about and to Adonai. And it's very clear he's talking about the creator of the universe. It's very clear that he's talking about the Lord God of Israel, right? Not some earthly king. In other words, all of that, so you're like, Pastor Nate, where are you going with this? Are we ever going to actually get to Mark 12? Yes. What I'm, the point that I'm making is in Psalm 110, the Lord God Yahweh is talking to someone else with a royal title attributed to God himself. The sovereign one is clearly divine. And in Psalm 110, it's clear that God is having a conversation with someone else. David is saying, Yahweh said to my sovereign one. And what's, what's interesting, what's, what's uh, interesting about David's life is he never had a sovereign one. He never, the only covenant king he ever had a relationship with was God himself. He never became a vassal king to a, another kingdom, to, a, to an emperor or to, a, to Pharaoh, right? So who in the world is David talking about? Now, according to scholars, the understanding of this psalm at the time of Jesus is that the Adonai in Psalm 110 is the Messiah, 
The, the average Jewish scribe at the time, the average Jewish person would have read this, or heard, rather heard this psalm in, in the synagogues and in the temple read, and they would have understood that, that God is talking to his anointed one, to the Messiah, right? There's a reason we call Christ great David's greater son, because not only is he G- David's son, but he's David's Lord. That's the entire point that Jesus is driving at in this dialogue by asking his questions. He's trying to help them understand that the one that they they believe, and rightly so, is David's son, is also David's Lord, okay? If that is not their understanding, if it's not their understanding in, in Psalm 110 that the Lord is talking to the Christ, Jesus's whole line of logic and reason is not practical. His questions don't make any sense. So more specifically, what is the psalm about? It's not, psalm 110 is not about Jesus' first advent. It is about the, the royal enthronement of the Messiah at the right hand of God. It's about his royal rule as enthroned king. So just think about this for a second. Jesus has shown them the law. The, the, the sand in the hourglass in his earthly ministry is winding down rapidly. And what topic does he bring up? His rule from the right hand of God the Father. Here's an application for us. We should share his kingship with urgency. We should have the same urgency of Christ for the topic of his kingship in our public discourse. We live in a world right now that has chosen just about every other God than the one true God. We're willing to make just about anybody else king except for Jesus. Society is willing to look at Jesus in just about every other way other than king. A good moral teacher, right? A a priest even who will have words for me when I'm hurting, right? Jesus is a pretty good guy. Maybe misunderstood by the church, but a pretty good guy. People are willing to say that. But when Jesus has limited time, He doesn't talk about how he's a pretty good guy. He talks about how he's a king. Furthermore, on the note of of the priest, Psalm 110 makes a big deal about about the fact that Christ is a priestly king, that whoever this king is going to be, he's going to be from the order of Melchizedek. Can this king bind your wounds? Yes and amen. Will he stand as a mediator between you and God? Yes, and that's absolutely necessary. But he's an enthroned royal ruler at the right hand of God the Father who conquers his enemies. What does that messianic rule look like in the plain language of the psalm? I'm not going to exposit the whole psalm in detail, but just give you six things very quickly. Here's here's an overview of the rule of Jesus when enthroned at the right hand of the Father according to Psalm 110. The Messiah remains at the right hand of Yahweh until his enemies are subjected to him. Secondly, the Lord supports and empowers the Messiah's rule. There's a oneness between the Lord and the Messiah in the Messiah's reign. Thirdly, it says the Messiah rules in the midst of his enemies from the right hand of the Lord. Physical presence is not necessary for his rule. This is a question that comes up in eschatology. How can Jesus be ruling right now when he's not physically here? Psalm 110 has no problem with that idea. There he is at the right hand of Yahweh, and yet Adonai, the Christ, the sovereign one, is ruling in the midst of his enemies. This brings up a natural question. 
Who in the world is capable of ruling in the midst of man from the heavens where God dwells? God alone. Whoever this Yahweh, whoever this Messiah is, he must be divine. Fourth, the Messiah's people volunteer their lives as free will offerings for his service. Who is worthy of that? If the anointed one is not God, this is a blasphemous thing to do. Because there's only one who is worthy of people offering up their lives as free will offerings. And that's God. Fifth, the Lord has declared the Messiah a priest. This is important. Remember the conversation Jesus just had about the coin that belonged to Caesar? It's got either his mother or the, the false goddess peace packs on the back, and it says Pontifus Maximus, meaning high priest. Jesus direct their, directed their attention to a psalm that makes it clear that the Christ is going to be the priest that will rule between God and God's people. So not Caesar, but rather the Messiah is the kingly priest that humanity needs. Six, the Messiah from the right hand of the Lord will bring judgment against the wicked. People often talk about Jesus' rule at right hand of, of the Father right now as if he's only capable of extending grace, right? People, people with certain eschatologies will read Psalm 110 or they'll read parts of Revelation and say, this can't be what's happening right now because there's too much judgment. And Jesus has only grace for the Gentiles. And I'll say things like, I think Jesus is capable of doing two things at once. He's capable of showing grace to the Gentiles and even grace to Israel. And at the same time, bringing the wicked to account for their sins. What, what, do, you, what do you think has been happening throughout history when these wicked tyrants have huge collapses and their nations go into economic and social turmoil for sometimes centuries at a time? That's judgment. It's not just some accident, accident or coincidence of history. But back to Mark 12. By drawing their attention to a psalm that they believed is about the Christ, Jesus is making them think about the psalm and the implications within it. And in doing so, they can put the pieces together about the divinity of the Messiah, who is not just the son of David, but also his Lord. Look at Mark 12 and see the words of David quoted by Jesus. It shows you Jesus' opinion about the psalm and, and really about the inspiration of scriptures in general. It says David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, right? Meaning, two things. These are David's words, and the agency of the inspiration of Psalm 110 is the Holy Spirit. I, I really don't like when English translations use the word in instead of by, because we as modern English speakers, we see the word in, and we're like, location. Go in the house, right? Go in the restaurant, right? We think of location. That's not what's happening here. This is sometimes translated in other English translations as by, because it's a, it's a matter of means, agency, instrument. And that's the point that Jesus is making. I think Jesus is testifying to what Louis Burkhoff called the organic view of the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, another view of the inspiration of Scripture, is, if you remember from our teaching on the Westminster Confession, is the mechanical view. And that is that the people who wrote the Bible, they're just like stenographers, like God is just kind of taking possession of them and they're just writing whatever God wants. They, they are pretty much useless other than just moving the pen across the page. It's the mechanical view. And then there's the existential view. The existential view of inspiration of scripture is that what the Holy Spirit does is he inspires you as you read it. 
That's what makes the scriptures inspired. That's nonsense. That's a view of the inspiration of scripture that really didn't get popular except for the last like 100 years. Okay? What, what Jesus is alluding to here really affirms the organic view, sometimes called the verbal, verbal plenary inspiration view of scripture. And that is that, that God used... He used the various attributes and experiences and context of authors, worked organically with and through that to write scripture, but it's always the Holy Spirit who, as Peter says, carried men along as they authored the scriptures. Does that make sense? So Jesus says these are David's words. David himself said these things in or by the Holy Spirit. So he attributes Psalm 110 to David. There are some that don't. Did you know that? There are some that believe that, that somebody after David wrote Psalm 110, and it was just attributed to David. Well, Jesus himself thinks that David wrote Psalm 110. There's Messianic testimony. There's Davidic testimony. You know what verse 1 in Psalm 1 and he, uh, 110 in Hebrew is? This is another thing that drives me nuts about English translations. Because when you're in seminary, you, they're like, all right, look at verse 1. It's like, Professor, do you mean Hebrew verse 1 or English verse 1? Because verse 1 in the Hebrew is that title that's at the top of Psalm 110. It says, a Psalm of David. That's inspired, right? It's one of the things that drives me crazy about people that are like, no instruments when you're singing songs. Why? The Bible literally commands in the Psalms to play some of those Psalms with certain instruments. The Holy Spirit's idea was play these with instruments. What are you talking about, right? It just makes me crazy, right? That's why I'm kind of receding right here. I have a widow's peak, so it kind of hides it, but that's why I have a receding hairline people like that so there's davidic testimony david's like i wrote this right then there's apostolic testimony did you know this is the most quoted or alluded to psalm in the new testament i mean peter comes right out and says it in acts 2 verses 34 36 this is what david said and he's quoting psalm 110 so there's apostolic testimony and according to william lane there's also historic archaeological testimony because recently, I don't know how recent recently is, but there was, there's archaeological evidence that was discovered. They discovered the entire Psalter intact, dating from the 3rd century B.C., which means all the critical scholarship that said that some guy came along in like the 5th or 4th century, or, uh, century B.C. And, and wrote this and attributed it to David means it can't possibly be the case. It can't possibly be the case that somebody from the 2nd century, rather, uh, B.C., wrote this psalm because we have this text from the 3rd century B.C. that says that David wrote it. It's the entire Psalter intact. So there's Messianic, Davidic, Apostolic, and Historic testimony, all pointing to the fact that David wrote Psalm 110. And Jesus believes that. Jesus also clearly believes that the Holy Spirit was the means by which David wrote. And it's important to understand that when David wrote about the Christ or about anything else in the Psalms, He was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. The whole Psalter was placed on the same level, right? There weren't like, here's these inspired psalms here, and here's the uninspired psalms over there. Now, the whole Psalter was understood at this time to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, if you read Luke 24, Jesus clearly puts the law and the prophets at the same level, in the same category as the psalms. They're all the scriptures that teach about him. They're all on equal footing. This verse in Mark 12 helps us get a sense of what Jesus thought about the Old Testament. They were the scriptures, and men wrote by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So King David 
and the Holy Spirit are each in their own way responsible for Psalm 110. And here's implications that lead to application. The psalmist wants you to sing about the rule of Christ. When you turn on Christian radio today, I, I literally turn it on, and we're driving down the road, and I said, oh, a Jesus is my boyfriend song. It literally, I thought I was listening to pop radio for like the first like 60 seconds of this song. I thought I was listening to like the new like Harry Styles or whoever, I don't know, whoever's big these days. I don't really care. But I thought, you know, are, are some of these old guys from the 90s coming out of retirement and writing more like boy band pop music? No, it was a worship song. When you read the Psalms, they don't sound like the Christ is my boyfriend. They sound like the Christ is my king, and he's bringing judgment upon the enemies of God's people. If you sing songs about an emaciated Savior, you'll have an emaciated church. Great David makes much of his greater son. Not only does the psalmist want you to sing about the rule of the Christ, but so does the Spirit. The Spirit wants you to understand and sing about the rule of of Christ. The Spirit, as Jesus states in the upper room lectures of, of, of the Gospel of John, the Spirit makes much about the Son. The Psalms are the songbook of God's people, both Old and New Covenant. Are we to sing new songs unto the Lord? Yes and amen. He commands us to, I believe. But let's not neglect the songs that have been sung by the people of God for 3,000 years. By singing them, we actually do at times sing about the Christ, the anointed one who's been revealed to us. We're, we're no longer singing in, in anticipation of his first advent, but rather we sing in anticipation of his second coming and we celebrate his session, meaning his rule at the right hand of God the Father. You've probably heard the, the catchphrase lately, sing the Psalms and take dominion. Anybody heard of that phrase? Right? I think an application from this passage is sing the Psalms to declare Christ's dominion. Not every psalm covers his rule and reign, but many of them do, and we should sing them. Here's the fourth bullet point, and it's the last one for the day. The Lord of David. What is Jesus getting at about himself? He's driving home the point with his questions that he is the Lord of David. He will rule from the Father's right hand. All of his enemies will eventually be beneath his feet, he is divine, not merely a man descended of David. Whenever someone says, you know, Jesus never claimed to be divine, my brain immediately starts thinking, which of the several passages in the Gospels should I take them to? And I think this one might actually be a good one. Right? Jesus shuts everybody down with their questions, and he sets the agenda, and he takes them to a psalm that is about the Christ. And their cultural understanding about the Christ was that he would be the son of David. But the text itself, Psalm 110 itself, drives at the point that the son of David, the anointed one who is coming, is also divine. Jesus would have understood that. Anybody reading Psalm 110 in that day would have understood that this sovereign one that Yahweh is talking to is God himself. And how do the people respond to Jesus' teaching about the Lord of David? He doesn't come right out and say, I'm the Lord of David. Right? He's getting them thinking. He's asking them questions to stir up thought. But how do the people respond to his teaching about himself? The text here in the ESV says, they heard him gladly. The New American Standard says, the great crowd enjoyed 
hearing him. They enjoyed it. They heard it gladly. We even see the same language in Luke chapter 24. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with some of his disciples that don't really recognize him just yet. And he starts unpacking the law, the prophet, the Psalms, showing them how all the different scriptures, the Old Testament on the seven mile walk point to the Christ. And they enjoyed it, right? They didn't look at their watches and go, all right, buddy, you're going too long. Uh, It's a long walk, but can we just walk in silence for a little bit, right? They enjoyed it. The whole counsel of the word of God tells us about Christ. It points us to Jesus. And when the word of Christ tells us about Jesus, we should enjoy it. Let us remember the very first catechism of the Westminster Shorter Catechisms. What is your chief end? Meaning, what is your chief goal or purpose as a human being? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that amazing? That God designed you and part of your chief purpose is to enjoy him forever. Not just a little while, but forever. So how can we maximize? How can we maximize our enjoyment of hearing from Jesus about Jesus Here's just a handful of ways that we can maximize the enjoyment of hearing about Christ. And these are all taken from two of, of Westminster's larger catechisms and kind of put in my own words. So credit to the divines. They were brilliant and godly pastors, and I, am, uh, I glean from them greatly. First is this, diligence. Keep going to the word. It's, you're never just going to stumble into a chair and have a Bible fall off a shelf and flap open and make you start reading it. <laughs> Be convenient, right? Micah would be the best student of the word ever because he falls over all the time and the Bible would just be there and he'd just be looking at it. It's not going to happen. You have to make a plan, set goals, be diligent. Secondly, desire. Desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in the word. Here's a key to this. Starve your appetite for the things that rob you of your desire for the word of God. And stoke the desire for reading God's word. Stamp out what quenches the desire, and in doing so, it will help you stoke your desire for the word. Third is reliance. Come to the scriptures persuaded that God alone can enable you to understand the words of scripture. This is called illumination. Pray for illumination when you read the scriptures. This is one of the things that the the uh, neo-Orthodox guys Uh, New Orthodox basically means not Orthodox. Um, It it means new Orthodoxy, but really the New Orthodoxy crowd, Barth and and the gang, they were not Orthodox. But they would tell you that the Bible, I mentioned them earlier, they would tell you, look, when you read the Bible and you start understanding understanding it, that's that's how the Bible is being inspired. That's wrong. They They were confusing inspiration for illumination. The Bible already is inspired, but it needs to be illuminated. And we rely on the same Holy Spirit that inspired the scriptures. We rely upon him to illuminate God's word to us. Does that make sense? If you come to the Bible relying on your own intelligence and your own flesh to understand it, you're in trouble. Even if you have a PhD in New Testament theology, when you go to read the New Testament, you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to help you understand the scriptures. Fourth, reverence. Read and hear the word with a high and reverent esteem for the God who speaks. The God who created you, the God who sustained you, he 
speaks. The false gods of the world have mouths but cannot speak. And God has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. So when you read and hear the word, have reverence for the God who speaks. Prayer. As God speaks to you through the reading of his word, pause for a moment and talk back. It doesn't have to be long, but pray back. Even use the scriptures perhaps to stoke the fire of your prayer life. And this will increase your enjoyment of the reading and hearing of God's word. Number six, practice. Put the word into practice so as to bring forth fruit. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And I promise you, church, if you become doers of the word, your hearing and reading of God's word, your enjoyment of it will increase. Because you'll be able to see, look, there is fruit. When you take God's word and you apply it to your lives, there is positive impact in my life, in the life of my family. I can see the fruit being born of the, from the word of God. And that will increase your enjoyment of it. Like when you, uh, we do this every year, we plant stuff, right, out in our little atrium. And it grows and it's fine. And then fall comes and we forget it's out there. And it dies, there's no perennial anything at the Xander's house, at least nothing that bears fruit. But isn't it nice when you plant a, a fruit bush or a fruit tree in your backyard, or perhaps your neighbor did and he shares with you, whatever the case might be, isn't it nice when all of that hard work brings forth something that you can eat? My dad and I often lamented the fact that the yard that we grew up, we spent all that time mowing this big patch of grass. We could have been growing food the whole time, right? Like we, we, could have, we could have had fruit coming forth rather than just blades of grass that nobody ate. That maximizes the enjoyment of planting and working in your yard, doesn't it? In the same way, putting the word to practice in your life, it'll bring forth fruit, and that will increase your enjoyment of the labor of going to the word. But what if you read or hear the scriptures and you find no enjoyment? What then? Well, you could be under discipline for sin. And I think the purpose of that discipline is to draw you in, not to drive you away. Right? The, the, the purpose of discipline is to restore the relationship, not to end it. Secondly, you could just be in a season in which God is refining you. You could be a really highly competent, capable person, and God is drawing you to himself to say, Hey, you need to stop relying on yourself so much. You're dependent on you, and you're supposed to be dependent on me. Perhaps he's disciplining you in another way because you've been relying on your own strength. Perhaps he just wants to sanctify you. Third, you could be in need of regeneration. You, you could need to be converted. If you open God's word and, and you just find no enjoyment in it whatsoever, it, and that's a, there's a long period of that, it could be that you need to come to saving faith in Christ. Whatever might be going on, whatever the nature of disease, the cure is Christ alone. And Jesus clearly from this text, he would have you to know the truth about himself. He would have you know today, here and now, that his blood is enough. By his wounds we are healed. The sinless Savior who died, he rose again, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father now, and he rules us. And that rule is not benign. It's not a token kingship like many monarchies that still exist today are. No, the Messiah, 
the anointed one, the Christ, he can lead you out of the spiritual fog that you're in. He can lead you out of the desert season that you're in. And he can even bring you out of the dominion of darkness and into his own kingdom. Jesus is the king, whether people are living that way today or not. But eventually everyone will bow. But by his grace, people today can bend the knee. It's far better to be the people described in Psalm 110, the people offering up their lives freely as an offering to the Lord. It's better to be those people than to be the enemies that are made his footstool. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.